Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and we'll be reading tonight verses 7 through 10. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things, which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Believe it or not, I am not trying to take the wind out of anybody's sails tonight. I want to encourage you. This is a word of encouragement. You're going to have to bear with me. The first part may not be encouraging. But it gets encouraging at the end. If you stick with it, it's got a happy ending. What does it mean to be an unprofitable servant? What is Christ talking about here? First of all, I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. For sure what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are worthless in God's sight. We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundation of the world. I still can't wrap my mind around that. I accept that by faith. We're beloved of God. We're called as saints. We're given the spirit of adoption, as Romans 8.15 says, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We are the children of God. He loves us. He sent his son for us. We're not worthless. However, we're unprofitable. There's a difference. Three centuries ago, a man named John Gill explained what kind of unprofitable servants we are in far better words than I ever could. These are his words, not mine. We are not unprofitable in such sense as unregenerate men are who are disobedient and to every good work reprobate and unfit, as in Romans 3.12, or as the slothful servant who did not what his Lord commanded in Matthew 25.30. Nor is this the sense that they are unprofitable to men, for they may be and are very useful and serviceable to men and to the saints, but that they are unprofitable to God, by whose grace and strength they are what they are and do what they do and can give nothing to him but what is his own and his due and so can lay him under no obligation to them, nor merit anything from him, no, 
not even thanks, and much less heaven and eternal life. We don't even deserve a thank you, much less heaven and eternal life, is what he's saying. In traveling this past summer, I passed a church in the hills of North Carolina. It had a sign out front that said, Worship is just giving God his breath back. Even when we worship, which we should do, and which is well-pleasing in God's sight, we're commanded to do it, to worship in spirit and in truth. But when we do so, we're just giving him his breath back. We don't earn anything by doing it. What did you, or me, any of us, what did we bring to the table when we came to Christ for salvation? You thought about that? As a Christian, have you thought about that? I'll come back to that in a minute. Do you find yourself contemplating the gospel in regards to your own unworthiness. And I mean right now at this very moment. Do you contemplate God's amazing grace right now at this very moment in opening your blind eyes and giving you the gift of faith? If this knowledge and understanding was kept foremost in our consciousnesses, then our lives would truly become the anthems of praise to our Savior that they should be. But how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget our own unworthiness. And just as bad or worse, how keen we are to observe the unworthiness of those around us. In Matthew 7, 3, our Lord and Savior asked, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log? And the King James, which I grew up with, it was the, the beam that is in your own eye. We should keep our own unworthiness in mind when dealing with our fellow unprofitable servants. And speaking on that, I can't help but be drawn to Colossians 3.13. I'd like for you to go there. This verse smacked me upside the head six months ago, approximately. On a Friday morning, men study and we touched on this verse. And it, I went and did a word study on it. And I, I guess, if I confess the truth, possibly I was looking at it for a loophole. Maybe that's what I was doing. And I looked at the Hebrew and I thought, well, I mean, what does it really mean? And in the back of my mind, Probably I was thinking, I don't want it to mean exactly what it says, but I mean, I can kind of get close. The games we play. Colossians 3.13. Well, let's, let's start with 12. 
12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. I didn't have a problem with that, by the way. Verse 13. Bearing with one another. Oh, starting to have a problem with that. And forgiving one another. I got a problem with that too. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And I went around in circles trying to figure out if there was a way to interpret that verse, I guess to justify myself, if I'm being honest, because I got a hard time doing that. And I'm not alone. Here's some questions that came to my mind. As I'm, I'm doing this study on this verse, why is it so hard for us to bear with one another? Our fellow believers, our fellow warriors in this battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil as we are instructed to do. The scriptures are very clear on, the, on this point. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring glory to God. That's Romans 15, 7. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 2. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul David Tripp, in his devotional book, New Morning Mercies, asks these poignant questions. How is it possible that we, who have been blessed with eternal love far beyond anything that we ever could have hoped to earn, could be so regularly unloving to those around us? How could we ever fail to respond in mercy to others when we have been given mercy that is renewed with each new morning? Why are judgment and condemnation often our more natural responses to the sin, weakness, and failure of others than offering them the same grace that we have been given? Why are we so impatient when the extent of God's patience with us stands as one of the redemptive miracles of our lives? It is sad but true. Our refusal to give grace to others reveals how much we still need grace ourselves. Our failure to forgive shows how much we still need God's moment-by-moment forgiveness. It all argues that we still don't deserve the favor that we are given daily and are called to give to others who are as undeserving as we are. Ouch. Because that felt like a slap in the face. 
And if you read something and it feels like a slap in the face, maybe you need a slap in the face. And that was true with me. Because these highlight my own failures. And in speaking on this, I'm reminded of a Christian brother who said he had a master's degree in bitterness. And I thought, I'm glad I'm not the only one. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So I'm confessing to you all that I struggle with bitterness. It is part and parcel of who I am. It is woven into my fallen DNA. It's not right. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't struggle with it. I should just let it go. Easier said than done. For any of you that also struggle with bitterness, know to be true. So I'm asking you to pray for me. And that's scriptural. Because I'm telling you, I'm bent in the wrong direction. Especially when it comes to bitterness. That's just for starters. And that point made me think that I want to point out right here at I'm already several minutes in, and usually I open up with some thoughts to, to this, uh, of this nature. If anything I say is contrary to Scripture, I mean tonight, or in Sunday school, or just talking to you in conversation, I want you to call me on it and say, Hey, brother, you just said something that that is absolutely not scriptural. Because we all need accountability. But I'm also telling you that if anything that I say makes you think less of me, then you need to think less of me. So believe me when I say that bitterness is something that I need to repent of every day of my life. And that's true. Luther's first thesis, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Too often we treat repentance as a one-shot deal. I repented back when I became converted and I became a Christian. I turned from my sin. I turned to Christ. You need to keep repenting. We all need to keep repenting. It should be a habit of ours to turn from our sin that we're so easily ensnared with. I often have to ask the Lord to give me a spirit of repentance because I have a tendency to make excuses for myself instead of facing the truth and the wrongness of my actions, of my thoughts, of my words. James one twenty two says, 
be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's an exhortation for every Christian who has ever lived. And if you think of the danger that is inherent in that, deceiving yourselves. You know, it's been said, I think it's attributed to Adolf Hitler. I'm not sure that he said that for sure. He's been variously quoted as saying this. It sounds like the kind of thing he would say. If you tell a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. That sounds like a Hitlerism. What he's saying is if you keep lying over and over and over again and you tell the same lie, you'll start to believe it. Other people start to believe it too. Doesn't make it true. We tell ourselves the same lies over and over again when we make excuses for ourselves. And I do it. I first person know what that looks like. Because when I have a sinful attitude, when I have bitterness in my heart, it is so easy for me to say, I have reasons, good reasons for feeling like I feel. Instead of doing what I should, and I'll tell you what you should do if you have bitterness against a brother or a sister. Even if you have bitterness against somebody who's not a brother or sister, they're the rotten scallywag that you work with, and they talk bad about you behind your back. I'm just painting a picture of, I don't have anybody specific in mind, just painting a picture of somebody that, a random person that would cross your path, that drives you crazy, makes you mad, offends you. What should you do? Pray for them. Pray for them and don't return evil for evil, which is my tendency. And I got reasons for doing that too. I'm just reciprocating. That's just payback. They talk trash about me, I'll talk trash about them. They speak harshly to me. Oh, I can speak harshly. I got a tongue that could cut glass. I can get really sharp. And I can make excuses for doing it. And it's just wrong. I got a question for you. Do you, have you ever thought to yourself, have you ever caught yourself thinking that you're a credit to the kingdom? Because maybe you have, maybe you're really smart. Maybe you have a great speaking ability, a great leadership ability. Maybe you're the world's best husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, and you think, I'm something special. The only thing that any one of us have when we come to Christ for salvation all that we have in our hands is sin. That's all we bring to the table is sin. That's all we add to the relationship between us and God is sin. He takes our sin 
and he gives us righteousness. And that sounds too good to be true. And when something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. But not in this case. This sounds too, be, too good to be true, and it's the gospel. It's the good news. And in thinking on that, I think about my dad, who told me that upon hearing and truly understanding the gospel for the first time in 1974, that God opened his eyes to the truth of his complete and utter inability to meet God halfway by cleaning up his act, trying to do better, living an upright life. Before dad's conversion, he had planned to someday straighten up and fly right. Y'all have all heard that term. You may have said it yourself. I'm going to straighten up and fly right. My dad thought in doing so, straightening up and flying right, that he would be taking the first step towards making things right with God. Hmm. A lot of people think that. I'll do my part. God will do his part. I'll meet him halfway. That's how relationships work. I'm telling you, that is how relationships work with people. That's a fact. With people, with your fellow human beings, you do have to meet them halfway. And it can't be all take or all give. And it's a two-way street and all those other aphorisms that we apply to human relationships. That's true. Human to human, that's true. But it doesn't work that way in our relationship with God. All we do, all we can do, is take. Because we are utterly dependent on Him for everything. Remember the sign, worship, is just giving God His breath back. We think you're offering something great to God by worshiping him. He's the one who put the air in your lungs. He's the one that gave you a mind that could, that could even process the concept of worship. He's the one that gave you the heart that desires to worship him. It all came from him. You're just giving him what's his. It's already his. And we forget that. So my, going back to my dad, my dad planned to, for him, it was quit getting drunk every day. Quit smoking pot all the time. And he was going to straighten up and fly right. And he was going to be a better husband and a better father and a better man and a better worker and a better neighbor and a better son and a better brother. Self-improvement. I'm going to tell you something. Dad, he did not like Hank Williams one bit. And he didn't even like that song, I Saw the Light, that Hank Williams came out with in 1948, which is the year of both of my parents' birth, 1948. We all probably heard it. But Dad told me, 
never forget his words. Son, God opened my eyes and I saw the light. Praise God that he takes rotten, no good, pot smoking, whiskey drinking, drunken, blasphemers, sinners, opens their blind eyes, takes their heart of stone away, gives them a heart of flesh, fills their hearts with praise, calls sinners to himself, says repent and believe. And makes it possible for us to repent and believe. Because he gives us the spirit of repentance. Because he gives us the belief. Reminds me of some words to us. Him. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a savior. You know something, it is utter foolishness to think that our law-keeping can merit salvation or even keep us in a state of grace. And that is an error that is prevalent today, that our law-keeping keeps us in a state of grace. Romans 3.20 tells us that by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. A Bible translator named John Bertram Phillips said, It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Christian, no matter how perfectly you may keep the law, the law-keeping itself deserves no reward. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you deserve a reward. John MacArthur wrote, There is no salvation through the keeping of God's law because sinful man is utterly incapable of doing so. He has neither the ability nor the inclination within himself to obey God perfectly. And that calls to mind the words that we just read tonight from chapter 16 of the Confession. Did you notice at the end of that chapter 5 of our paragraph 5 of chapter 16 did you notice that it said because as they are good talking about the works good works that we've done because as they are good they proceed from his spirit and this is the part that really stands out to me and as they are wrought by us they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness 
and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. That's our good works. That's the good stuff we do. We should keep our own unworthiness in mind, lest we fall into the sin of pride and self-righteousness, while at the same time being careful to avoid allowing that same sense of unworthiness to paralyze us. I've spoken before how it was C.S. Lewis that I first read this concept that Satan sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. So on the one side, you become puffed up because you think you're doing such a great job and you deserve a reward, pride, self-righteousness. On the other side, you think you're so unworthy that you might as well not even do anything. I might as well not even try. I'm just a loser. It's that song from the 90s. We were just talking about songs from the 90s today. Soy un perdedor. Is that how he said it? I'm a loser, baby. So why don't you kill me? That was a song. That's nihilistic. Abigail's going, that was a, really a song they played on the radio? Yes, it was. It was a big hit back in the 90s. So on the one hand, you think you're a, a big winner and you deserve you deserve God's praise. And on the other hand, you think you're a terrible loser and you might as well just die. They're both errors. What does Spurgeon say about it? There is a sacred way. These are his words. Spurgeon, not me. There's a sacred way which runs between self-congratulation and despondency. A very difficult track to find and very hard to keep. There are great perils in the consciousness that you have done well and that you are serving God with all your might. For you may come to think that you are a deserving person worthy to rank among the princes of Israel. The danger of being puffed up can hardly be overestimated. A dizzy head soon brings a fall. But perhaps equally to be dreaded on the other side is that sense of unworthiness which paralyzes all exertion, making you feel that you are incapable of anything that is great or good. Blessed is that believer who finds the straight and narrow way between high thoughts of self and hard thoughts of God, between self-esteem and a timid shrinking from all effort. Errors come to the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. Have you ever wondered why God would even want to have anything to do with any of us? Isaiah 53, 6 paints a picture of every last one of us as sheep who have gone astray. 
Romans 3, 10 through 12 says that none of us are righteous, that none of us understand, that none of us seek for God, that we've all turned aside and become worthless, that none of us does good, not even one. That is a picture of us, you and me, apart from grace. Apart from grace, that's what we are. What I'm pointing you towards is how amazing God's grace is. What it does for our standing. When God looks at us, I had a pastor who, Earl White, Pastor White, who would say, it was one of his trademark phrases, he would say, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he rails against us and points out our sins and accuses us. But when God looks at us, instead of our sins, he sees the blood of Christ covering us. And Satan yells, I have his image of Brother White. You remember Brother White doing this? He said, Satan's going, guilty, 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 guilty. And God looks down on us and says, paid for, paid in full. Wow, that image has stuck in my mind. That's 40, 40 years old. Seeing Brother White do that in the 80s, in the early 80s, and he's passed now. Paid for. Grace. Our sins are paid for by the blood of the Lamb. Our lives should be an unceasing anthem of praise for the unfathomable grace which has been bestowed upon us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. The picture that God paints in Holy Scripture of a lost person is not someone who's punch drunk or someone who's sick. The picture is of a dead person. Spiritual death. We have spiritual dead people walking around on this planet and they don't even know they're dead. I told you I was going to end on a positive note and I am. 
I grew up singing Julia Johnston's 1910 hymn. I don't know if it's in the Trinity hymnal or not. Grace greater than our sin, is it? I'm going to look it up. I don't see it. Unless it goes by the grace tis a charming sound. I don't see. What else would it be called? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. I should have looked this up before. It just occurred to me. Is it in our hymnal? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. 465. I got it. Oh, there it is. I'm glad it's in here. See, I grew up singing. Look, Baptists sing different songs. Whatever. I'm just saying we don't always sing the same hymns. I'll tell you one thing. There's no, it's a new name written down in glory in this book, I guarantee you. I used to sing that too. That's balderdash, by the way. There are no new names written down in glory. That's contrascriptural, but that's an aside. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, Julia H. Johnston, 1910. Yeah, I grew up singing this song. Even the Baptists love this song. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. (laughs) Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen to that. I'm leaving you with a couple of the most encouraging verses for unprofitable servants. That's us and the whole Bible. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And if that doesn't put the wind in your sails, then you don't have your sails up. Grace, our story as Christians, it begins with grace and it ends with grace. And all the parts in the middle are grace, unmerited favor. given to undeserving, unprofitable servants.
Praise God. Soli Dea Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Our